0: Well, this morning we're going to be jumping back into our temptation series, uh, the series where we are encouraging to know your enemy and know your friend. Uh, We have so far been in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11 this morning. Uh, Now, one thing that's important to remember about the nature of temptations is that none of us are exempt. It it is something that is part of what it means to be human. And Jesus demonstrated this, and the fact that he came and he took on flesh, and he himself actually experienced every temptation that is known to us. And yet, Hebrews 4 says there is a unique attribute of Jesus and the way that he faced temptations that is distinct from every other human. It is that he not only faced every temptation that is known to man, it says that he did so yet without sin. In other words, he never actually fell into, he never took the bait of sin. He was unique in his holiness at every point. Now, that can't be said of any of us. Uh, We've been using an updated version of John Owen's definition of temptation throughout this series. So just to remind you of that, he said that temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from obedience to God towards sin in any degree. Now, thus far, we've seen that we have all inherited a, a sin nature, uh, now, here's the problem. Uh, as we think about temptation, we have struggles internally and we have struggles externally. Internally, we know that we were born into sin. Uh, the psalmist David in Psalm 51, five says, "...behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." Each of us struggles internally with the Bible uh, with what it calls the flesh. So if you're this morning and you're thinking, man, like, I really struggle with like a desire to sin and I don't want to tell anybody else because I'm probably different than they are and they don't struggle with this thing, uh, guess what? You're in a safe place. The Bible says we all struggle with that thing. Well, this morning as we think about that, we also recognize that the Bible says that there are external enemies that we need to be aware of. In fact, Matthew 4 speaks of Satan and the way that he is the arch nemesis of God. In fact, his name literally means adversary. He is the enemy of God and his people. And Jesus confronts him in our text this morning. Now, you'll remember that the Holy Spirit up to this point has led Jesus to be tested by Satan who tempted Jesus. Now, I use different words there intentionally. The Holy Spirit led him to be tested where Satan tempted him. It's important to note that the same word for God's testing can be used for Satan's tempting. See, the the same event can have two different purposes depending on the actor. And God never tempts his people. James is clear about that. But Satan has no interest in testing us. His desire is to lead us towards death and destruction. And so God seeks to reveal the truth about his relationship to you and your trust in him. Satan simultaneously always seeks to kill, steal, and destroy those he tempts. The tempter is also the master deceiver, isn't he? He is always looking to cause something to look good that is actually harmful for us. Uh, I love a quote by Thomas Brooks that really shows this. Um, I like to fish, a specific kind of fishing. Uh, I like deep sea fishing, and I always like to fish when I catch fish. I don't like fishing when I don't catch fish. But this is what Tom Brooks says. Thomas Brooks says this. He was a Puritan writer. He says, Satan is a master fisherman, and he seeks to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. That's the nature of what Satan is is out to do for us. And because fighting temptation can feel overwhelming, uh, this morning, as you're thinking about it, I, I have been... Uh, pastoring people all week, uh, had a number of cases that have come before me. I know that a number of people are struggling with temptation in different ways, And, and I just want to give you five quick realities so that as we're thinking about temptation in this sermon and throughout, that you have these in the forefront of your mind. That's why I want to front load these. So here are five quick things I just want you to have in your mind as we think about temptation. Here's the first. Jesus overcame temptation in every way for all of those who are united to him by faith. That is the hope of the gospel. Jesus came and he, he overcame temptation in every way. Every temptation that is known to man, he's overcome those things. It might not be in the specifics, but in the broad categories, he's been tempted in every way and he overcame it for you and me. That is the hope that comes to us in the gospel. We need to remember that. But second, we also need to know that Jesus also models how we can overcome temptation. In other words, we don't just look at temptation and say, hey, I've got a lot of temptation But it's all right. I mean, like, I don't really need to do such a great job with temptation and fighting it off because Jesus did that. And so if Jesus did it, I'm good. No, there's an invitation in Jesus' conquering of temptation that invites us to follow. He takes up his cross, and then he invites us to take up our cross and follow him. Third, there are consequences to conceding to temptation. There are consequences. There is forgiveness for sin, true forgiveness, He cast our our guilt as far as the east is from the west, but remember that that doesn't mean that there are not consequences, even abiding consequences. Uh, Consequences like the loss of reputation or job, the hardening of your conscience and its recognition of right and wrong, leading others into sin, including the loss of spouses, friends, or children. And, And Hebrews even warns of death and eternal judgment for those who do not turn from sin and from temptation. See, holiness leads to happiness and sin leads to sorrow. Fourth, overcoming temptation requires utter dependence on our victorious King Jesus and his spirit working in and through us. In other words, Jesus defeated sin for us, but our defeat of sin requires that we are utterly dependent on Christ and our victorious Christ. Frederick Bruner in his commentary says this, Jesus teaches that our spiritual warfare is with a defeated devil because we are in the company of a conquering Christ. Fifth, you can escape any temptation. Now this morning, as we're thinking about temptation, there might be a temptation that's already come to your mind that you feel like, I don't need another series on temptation because I know that I can't win. And I want you to know that it's a lie from Satan. It's a common lie, and it's not true. We are told in 1 Corinthians 10:12 to 13 that God always provides a way of escape out of every temptation, even if it comes straight from Satan. And so there is a way of escape for you, and it only goes through Christ. And it's Christ that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew 4, 8 to 11. Here's our big idea if you're taking notes. It's this. It's Satan. Here, Satan tempts us with the promise of a crown without a cross. Satan tempts us with the promise of a crown without a cross. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, before we begin, let me just pray to the Lord for help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we are coming before you and we are looking at your word, we're gazing on your word. And Father, I am sure there are many this morning who are struggling with all kinds of temptations. But Father, we pray and ask and beg that your word would do its work this morning, that it would be the mighty sword that we need to have victory over temptation and to serve you and to honor you and adore you as we ought. And so God, would you this morning help us by the power of your spirit through your word we pray, amen. Well, the first thing that we see here in this text, it is in verses 4, 8 to 9, it's that you can't have the crown without the cross. You can't have the crown without the cross. Now, you'll remember that Matthew's gospel focuses a lot on the kingdom of God or the king of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And he introduces Jesus in verse 1-1 as the son of David. So King Asaph, this guy is Jesus, is in the line of David, that great messianic king whom was promised an heir on the throne forever. He is the one in whom the promises that have come to Israel will be fulfilled. And Matthew says, this is the king that we have been longing for, the one who would rescue Israel. That's verse 1. I want to get you ready for the king who has come. And the king represented his people. That's the reality that we find in King David. He he was the one who was the representative head of his people. I like what Dr. John Mead says often when he speaks of this. He says it was this idea that as goes the king, so goes the people. So if the king was holy and righteous and living his, leading his people in a good way, it would be good for the people. And if not, it would lead them astray. And Israel was seen as God's national son. But the king would have been seen as his representative son. And so David and Israel, they both sinned against God. They failed. They fell into temptation. But Jesus arrived as this new and true Israel who came to obey God in every way on behalf of his people. And that's why we find him in Matthew 2 coming out of Egypt as God's son representing Israel. And God the Father publicly announces Jesus as his beloved son with whom he is well-pleased in Matthew 3. God has not been well-pleased with anybody for about 400 years in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about all the ways that God's people have failed him. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. Now that's a mountaintop spiritual experience for Jesus. When the heavens open and the Spirit descends, and you're announced as someone that God the Father is pleased with. Well, it's after that that he fasts for 40 days. And then the Spirit, as he's hungry and tired, he is led into the great temptation against Satan, where he will be tested by God and tempted by Satan. See, Jesus will be obedient where Israel failed when confronted by temptation in the wilderness where Jesus would meet Satan. He is reliving the history of Israel, and he is obedient where they are not, so that he might bring salvation about for a people. It's fascinating that Jesus is led up to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan in verse 1. Fascinating, up to the wilderness. And then we're told in verse 5, Malachi showed how he's led up to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, where he was tempted yet again. Well, here he is as high as he's been yet on a very high mountain. And and note how high it is. So high that he can see the kingdoms of the nations. And here he is at this high point where the golden bait is laid for him by Satan in verses 8 to 9. And look what it says. This is what it says. Again, again, the devil took him, being Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, not even Mount Everest provides a clear vantage point for all the kingdoms of the world. So it seems that this is a a visionary point that that Satan has given him where he has said all of the kingdoms of the earth can be yours. But what is the devil really offering Jesus here? Have Have you thought about that? he's he's right here offering him the crown of all the kingdoms of the world with their collective glories. He's saying, Jesus, you can be the king of kings. Now, you might think, as you think about this, I'm just curious, is this a legit offer? I mean, you remember that elsewhere in the New Testament, the devil is called the prince of this world and the ruler of this age. So so it could be that the devil really can offer the kingdoms of the world to Jesus in some sense. And I believe this might be a bona fide offer where he would have the kingdoms uh, of this world. So the devil will give God's anointed the nations that rage if he will obey his simple request. But what does Jesus really get out of this? I mean, will he not already be crowned as the king of kings anyway? It could be that he's offered the kingdoms of the world over against the kingdom of heaven that he's ushering in, that that could be what's happening. But I think there's something much subtler that Satan is offering here. See, Satan offers instant power, authority, and a crown. And all that Jesus had to do is to fall down and worship the devil. Now, the the tense of this word for worship here tells us that he's just asking. It looks like a one-time kind of worship service. I don't know if he's looking for one verse or three, but he's like, if you'll just worship me and whatever that means, like right now, I will give you the kingdoms. I'm not asking for ongoing worship, just this moment in time. Now, the deal isn't just for a crown here, though. See, I think that what Satan is actually offering, he's offering Jesus a crown without a cross, See, Jesus wants us to understand that Satan tempts us with a crown without a cross, and any thought of a crown without a cross is satanic. See, God sent Jesus as that greater Moses who came to lead a greater, a greater exodus out of slavery, not just to a nation, but to sin, death, and the devil, to establish an eternal kingdom radiating with the very glory of God. See, Jesus would not be diverted from the cross, No cross meant no crown. No cross meant no salvation of sinners. No cross means that we're not here this morning to hear Jesus Christ preached. No cross means all kinds of things. But in Matthew 16, I believe that Peter proves that the pursuit of a crown without a cross is satanic and is in view. See, in Matthew 16, I, I think that we almost have Peter unwittingly give us a hermeneutical key to how to understand Matthew 4. You'll remember how Peter, in Matthew 16, begins by looking like an all-star. He's sort of the the representative head of the disciples. He is always first to speak. He is always extremely excited and confident. Uh, He always thinks much more of himself than he ought to. And he always gets shown who he truly is. Uh, He reminds me a lot of myself. And so Matthew here, as I think, using Peter, he he uses Peter later to help us understand what it is that Satan is tempting Jesus with. See, Matthew 16, 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus asks who he is, Peter shows up and says exactly the right thing. This is your identity. Now Jesus proceeds to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking of this testimony, that's a pretty high mark. That is a, a sort of a mountain sort of experience, a mountaintop experience with God when Jesus looks at you and says, Ataboy. attaboy right? I'm going to build my church, my kingdom, on you and your testimony, and I'm giving you the keys to it. That's a lot of confidence, a lot of trust, a lot of uh, encouragement of Peter. But just four verses later, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he must suffer, be killed, and raised from the dead. Peter says, Jesus, I'll never have it. Why do you keep speaking this way? Stop speaking that way. You know, it's always bad to rebuke Jesus. Just Side note. And in verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now that might sound harsh and cruel for Jesus to call Peter Satan. Why did he do that? Here's the more important question. In what way is Peter like Satan here? I mean, doesn't Peter sound... So much like Satan in Matthew 4, though, offering Jesus a crown without a cross. You can rule, but you don't need to die. And Jesus says that that's satanic and it's a satanic temptation that you can think that you can inherit the kingdom of God without going through the cross of Christ. Don't forget what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 16, 26. Right after this, he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Sound sound familiar? I mean, here he is saying, there is no way to have the kingdom that I am ushering in and bringing without the cross. I think there are a couple of realities about temptation that arise here. The first is this. Temptation's power increases when our hearts believe that God is not enough. Our, Our hearts will become weaker towards temptation, the more that we begin to believe that God is not enough. Now, have you ever felt it? That lie that that we can have good without God? Or that that God is in some way holding out on us good that that we want or believe that we deserve? Or, Or that maybe he's not holding out but holding back and not giving us much good as we would like? Or that maybe Satan or someone else has more good for us than what he has for us, and we're thinking about maybe shopping around for another god. Or or maybe we even think that Satan, perhaps in sin, has a better good, a more joyful, happy, life-giving good than God does. The lies that we believe, like grasping true happiness without holiness, drags us towards sin. In his commentary, John Calvin writes, Though we are convinced that all our support and aid and comfort depend on the blessing of God, yet our senses allure and draw us away to seek assistance from Satan as if God alone were not enough. Do you feel that this morning? That in your soul... You are tempted and struggling, and and the real question at the heart of it all is whether or not God, who says he is God and who says who he is, you are questioning whether or not he really is enough. God is enough. And don't miss this. Satan comes. He comes when we are vulnerable with this argument. He comes with temptation, inviting us to believe that God is not enough. Uh, This is uh, funny. I'm... I'm a great illustration constantly. Uh, My son, John, was misbehaving. And I said, John, did you have gluten today? Because sometimes, you know, gluten can make you act funny. And uh, John is just like super wise. And he just looks at me and he says, Dad, why do you always blame it on the gluten? (laughs) I mean, you are a pastor. That's right. You're grounded. Uh, We got all kinds of (laughs) discipline coming. You're a sinner. Like, let's go talk about the Bible. Like, But but he was was right in one sense that gluten doesn't cause the sin. But but let me say this. There are all kinds of things that make us vulnerable to sin. They they create the occasion of sin even though they aren't the cause of it. And are we we aware of the the ways that we become vulnerable to the voice of Satan that says, is God enough? There are times when we're weaker. There are times that we are hungry, tired, grief-stricken, anxious, lonely, angry, drunk, Sick, hurting, depressed, comfortable, and the list goes on. And, and they are not the cause of the sin. They might even be sin. They might not be sin. But they create an environment where we are more vulnerable to asking whether or not God is enough. When we are hungry, we ask, is God really good enough and able to provide for my needs? When we find ourselves in debt, we are wondering whether or not God really can provide for us shelter over our heads. When we are lonely... We were wondering whether or not fellowship with the triune God and the local church that he has given us is enough to make us feel the fellowship that we long for. See, that's when we start looking elsewhere for what only God can provide. And losing sight of God's glory makes us vulnerable to Satan's invitation to worship him, to adore him in a way that only God deserves to be adored. But there's a second reality that I think we see here as well. It's that Satan's still happy to divert us if he can't destroy us. Satan's still happy to divert us if he can't destroy us. Satan, he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, but he's happiest merely to distract and divert you from the cross of Christ. See, Satan is happy for your church, our church, to be as big as we like as long as we don't preach the cross. He's happy for our our children to obey us, to get good grades, to make the varsity team, so long as they don't sense a need to deal with Christ on a cross. Satan's happy for... Our church is to boast of our good works and to have successful mission trips apart from utter dependence on Jesus Christ on the cross. You can build as many water wells as you like, but don't point people to the fount of every blessing that pours from the cross. He's happy to pray for us to pray to him, asking for health and wealth, so long as we don't pray tear drenched prayers over our sins and the sins of those around us before the God who sent his Son to die at the cross that we might come boldly before him to the throne of grace from which the only place floods grace from the cross. He's happy for that. Eric Raymond, I love what he says. He says, We are not ignorant of his schemes, the schemes of the devil. If Satan can't destroy you, he is simply content to distract you from the cross. Don't be distracted from the cross. Don't be distracted from the grace that you need, the mercy that flows from the cross. But catch what Jesus' response is. Second, Jesus uses the scriptures to fight temptation a third time. This is the third time that he's using scriptures to fight temptation. Verses 10 to 11. Now, you'll remember that that Satan has tempted Jesus. He's tempting him three times in Matthew 4. Uh, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels to defend him. But instead, Jesus models for you and me a defense against temptation that is accessible to all of us. Aren't you glad that he did that? I mean, imagine that Matthew 4 is he calls down a legion of angels and then he goes out on mission because he's good. Well, then we face temptation and we're like, angels, angels. This is not working well. But instead, what he gives us is something that we all have access to, which is the very word of God. And so here, Jesus models a defense against temptation that is accessible to all of us. In verses 4, 6, and here in verse 10, Jesus draws the sword of the Spirit to fight each of these temptations. And every time, he looks to Deuteronomy 6 to 8. All of these verses are coming from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. Same section in Deuteronomy now you'll remember that Moses preaches to the generation of Israelites that he led out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And it was there in the wilderness that a whole generation of God's people had to die out before their children could move in and take the promised land because they fell to temptation and they did not obey God. Even Moses, the great prophet, Actually, he got frustrated and angry at the people. And rather than obeying God, struck a rock so that water would come out. And it did. It came out and it fed the people water. It gave them the drink. It satiated their thirst. And yet, because of that, Moses himself was not allowed to go into the promised land. See, in Matthew 4, Jesus is pictured as that greater Moses, who would not strike the rock out of anger to provide the people with water, but instead he would be the rock who would be struck at the cross that his people might drink of living water, of eternal life, for all those who would put their faith in him. So here he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.13 in verse 10. Now Just take a look and, and see what it says. In verses 10 to 11 he says this, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now there are a few realities that strike me here. First is this: don't miss this. Jesus uses the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament to defeat Satan in the wilderness at his weakest point. Now, I don't know what you're grabbing for in the middle of the night when um, you know you hear like some kind of weird noise in the house. I don't know what it is that you're feeling safest with. Um, you know, I, I one time, I, I usually have a club that I keep around just in case. I uh, woke up one time, and I was delirious. I'm not good at waking up in the middle of the night. I'm really bad at it. And uh, couldn't find the club, and so all I had was a lamp. So I grabbed the lamp, and then I went, and I started running off, and I forgot to unplug it. And so I'm running, and I'm like, and it kind of pulled me back, and then I'm like, had to go unplug it, and then, you know, went out with this lamp, and it, it was kind of a funky-looking lamp. It wasn't like a real, like, safe-looking lamp, and that's what I grabbed. And I just felt like, I don't, I mean, like, what am I doing? Like, nobody's safe here. (laughs) And I think sometimes when we we think about, like, the Word of God, and we're thinking about our lives and the kind of temptations and the pull that we feel, like the danger, the real danger that we feel, we feel helpless and hopeless, and we look at the Bible and we're like, well, it looks kind of like that lamp, right? It doesn't look like it can save me. I don't know if it's got the power. I don't know if it's got the help that I need. I don't know if this really is going to work for me in the way that it worked for Jesus and others. But here Jesus, I believe, is giving us a model of what he is calling all of us to look to his very word for safety. And he's looking to the Old Testament. See, the, the word here was what Jesus used to do all of the work with Satan. Now, if you want to know how to conduct spiritual warfare against great temptation, you need God's word most of us look for a legion of angels to help us in times of temptation. Or we feel that the desire is too great for us to resist. And all the while, we ignore what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. Right? How many of you have found a weak point towards temptation, and you find yourself, it's difficult to get back to the Word of God, because you're not trusting it, but the less that you look to it, the weaker you feel. That's the reality of the Word of God. It is a powerful instrument and weapon that god has given us to fight off temptation see our view of god's word sometimes reminds me of a scene from men in black uh where will smith he was playing agent j and uh he has an older agent who's with him and over him agent k and their job is to fight aliens And so one day, Agent K comes, and he says, okay, let me show you your weapon. And he pulls out this really big gun, and he calls it some kind of dematerializer or something or the other. And he says, look at this. I mean, it's a macho-looking gun. And Will's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And then he pulls out this little gun. It's literally like this big. And he says, and this is for you. He's like, what? Like, we're going against huge enemies, and you're giving me that? What is that? It's the noisy cricket. You're going against these evil forces with the noisy cricket, you'll be fine. Well, the joke is, is that later Agent J finds an enemy and just out of reflex, he grabs it and shoots it and it throws him back through a wall. And he's like, what just happened? He's like, oh yeah, that's the joke of the Bureau is that like there's so much power in this weapon that nobody's ready for the kick that it gives off. I believe that when we are pursuing God and his spirit and his word, his word is able to do far more than what we're ready for and what we understand. We need to trust God's word. And similarly, we can be tempted to underestimate the power of God's word to help us overcome temptation. Not underestimating the power of God means that we need to study God's word, take advantage of God's word being taught, as it is here in all kinds of contexts, and speak scripture into the lives of others. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit to help us apply that word to believe that word, and to know more fully the God who spoke that word. But not only that, notice second in these verses that worshiping God alone protects against temptation. Worshiping God alone protects against temptation. See, Deuteronomy calls Israel to worship and serve God with a single-eyed devotion. That's what Deuteronomy 6 to 8 is saying. Saying, look, God has already shown that he is for you. He has rescued you. What you're called to do is to worship him alone, love him, fear him, trust him, and he will bless you. That's what he is calling his people to. And here, we have him calling Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, he is calling them to fear him as the great I am, and make them their God, just he has made them his people. And he commands them to love him and him alone with all their heart, soul, and minds. And God would fulfill all of those promises and bless them. Deuteronomy was saying, fearing, worshiping, loving, and serving God looks like obedience to his word. That's what he's saying. If you really love God, you are going to obey his voice. But that obedience flowed from hearts that adored God. That's what, what we have to have hearts that adore God. And only the gospel and the Holy Spirit can give us that with new hearts. Now here's the terrifying reality of temptation at its roots. It exposes that we don't adore God as we ought. See, the most powerful defense against temptation is not only God's word, but a heart that believes God is who he says he is and loves him for all that he is. So how are you stirring up an adoration in your heart for God? Is that one of the the main duties that you find in your life day by day, that I will strike up and stir up an adoration for God that is deep from within me and that flows out into the way that I talk about God with others and live for God before others. See, God is sovereign, good, beautiful, wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, always present, completely just, ever-faithful, inexhaustibly righteous, and altogether happy. He is the one who created us and redeems us. That is the God that we have been called to serve. And when God becomes great, we become small and we see our desires in their proper respect. See, when temptations become large, I believe it is because God has become small in our hearts and in our eyes. I had a woman call me one time, and I wish I could say this is the only time that this has happened, and tell me that she was leaving her husband. And I said, Well, well, what's happening? And she said, Oh, he's done nothing wrong, he's been faithful but I'm leaving him because he just doesn't make me happy. I said, well, you you know what God's word clearly says? It clearly says that that God hates divorce, and and it clearly says that you need to be faithful, and that we need to love marriage because God loves marriage. And so, like, like, how do you process that with what you're doing and the actions that you're doing? And she said, oh, well, I know that Jesus wants me to be happy, and this makes me happy. And so I think Jesus is okay with it. See, here's the problem. Jesus himself said, I will worship and serve God alone. And that means that I will obey his word every time and to the fullest. And in his humanity, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. So if if we really love God, I, I believe as we're looking at temptation, we need to know that the truth is that we need to make sure that we are adoring God and his word and his desires above our own such that they make our desires look small in comparison to the pleasure of God. And hopefully that as we do that, that we will be swept up into the pleasures of God so that we are pleased by God and the things that please him. If God really is who he says he is, how much greater is his joy than mine. And how much more do I want to experience his joy than my little joys that are broken and fallen? But the rest of Matthew shows us that Jesus isn't just a man, doesn't it? In fact, if you read through Matthew, what you'll find is is that Jesus third is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Now you'll remember that Satan told Jesus to worship him, but Matthew shows that Jesus alone is the one who is worthy of worship. Satan is saying, you should worship me, and Jesus is like, I don't think you understand what's happening here. I am the one who will be worshipped. I am the one who has come with the fullness of glory from the Father, so that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. See Matthew shows that Jesus alone is the one worthy of that honor. You'll remember in Matthew 2.11, the Magi came from the east and they fell down and worshipped Jesus as king of the Jews as he was but a baby in a manger. When Jesus walked on water in Matthew 14, the disciples in the boat were so terrified by his power and authority that they fell down and worshipped him in the boat. Then in Matthew 28, after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, He was raised from the dead. And as the women saw him, they came running and saw him, they fell down and worshiped him. And when the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus later in Matthew 28, they too worshiped him. Jesus just said, you only worship God. That's what he told Satan. And yet here he is receiving worship. So when Jesus receives worship from others, he's affirming that he indeed is very God. Now don't miss this. Worshiping Christ is the king of your life. And adoring him as the very image and glory of the Father is the great defense against temptation. Love Jesus more and you will hate sin more. Love Jesus more and you will hate sin more. Love Jesus more and you will love to obey him more. Only in him do you receive the Holy Spirit who seals and protects us for the great day when he will return for us. See, John's, John Stott's invitation I believe is, is a beautiful reminder of how we need to stick close to the cross if we want to have hearts that are aflame for him and adoring him and giving him the praise that is due his name. John Stott says this, the cross is a blazing fire in which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Are you spending a lot of time near the cross and near Christ and the scriptures so that those sparks are hitting you day by day so that your heart is a flame for God? Maybe the reason that your heart is cold this morning is that you haven't gotten close enough to the fire. And the fire, we find it in God's very word and with his people. So let's pray today that God would bring us close. Close to his word, and that he would cause us as a people to be aflame for him, and that our church, Trinity Bible Church, would be a group of people that are flame for the cross of Christ, and that in that we become a bonfire to the glory of God here in Phoenix let's pray that together, we pray with me.